Hello, everyone, and welcome to Quinn Cummings Gives Bad Advice, the podcast where I, Quinn Cummings, give advice to people I do not know. If you're joining us for the first time, you may be asking yourself, does Quinn really want to give me bad advice? And the answer is no, I do not want to give you bad advice. I want to give you good advice. But I have absolutely no qualification to give you any sort of advice at all. I am not Jeremy Irons. I am not Iron Man. I am not Man o' War. I give advice because it amuses me to do so. So you might be asking yourself, will this advice I'm about to give you be good advice? Well, I think the answer is in the title of the podcast. If you want me to give you bad advice, you can leave a question for me at qcbad.com. It's completely anonymous, and better yet, it's completely free. So I can offer up this advice with a 100% money-back guarantee. Now, let's get started. My first question comes from qcbad.com. Subject, imminent Trumpster in-law visit. Dear Quinn, all of my in-laws are Trump-loving magas who hate me because I'm a libtard. I bought a Tesla, and I'm a vegan tree hugger. After shunning us for years, since 2016, they are coming for a visit in February. I don't have any meat or dairy in the house. I need some bad advice. Tesla-driving vegans know a little bit about Buddhism. Here are your marching orders. I want you to find your inner Buddhist. Allow me to quote the Buddhist abbess Pema Chodron. You are the sky. Everything else, it's just the weather. Your in-laws will say things. You will note your feelings, smile pleasantly, continue your life. They may say hurtful, small-minded, fundamentally incorrect things. You will note your feelings, smile pleasantly, continue your life. If they eat bacon in your kitchen and mock you for caring about the factory farming industry, note your rising feelings, breathe, continue your life. See where I'm going with this? They have held timeshares in your head for entirely too long. See your in-laws, acknowledge your in-laws, have no intention of changing them. Meet them where they are. They cannot be completely garbage people. Virtually no one is. Try to find a moment, even only a moment, where you see their humanity. Because if you can be reminded of their humanity, you will become less afraid of them. And honestly, you are afraid of them, of what they stand for. But here's the thing. They are afraid of what you stand for. And between these two terrified groups is your spouse who probably just wants a visit without screaming. Try to give your spouse that without tearing yourself up inside. One more Pema Chodron quote. If we learn to open our hearts, anyone, including the people who drive us crazy, can be our teacher. This one comes from qcbad.com. Subject, Dish Stressed. Dear Quinn, I do most of the dishes in our house, which consist of me, the hubby, and the kid. When I say most, I mean all, except one glass. 
My husband will see a sink full of dishes, including lots of dirty plates, pots, and utensils made by him, but then wash one glass. When I see the pile of dishes next to the one clean glass in the dish rack, it infuriates me. I'd rather not get any help than false, lazy help. After almost 30 years, I finally told him this, and told him if he wants credit for doing dishes, he needs to actually do them. His response was to do a load of dishes the following week, once, then nothing, and now back to the one glass. What's a better way to get my point across than throwing a glass at him? I stared at this question for a while because it seemed fairly straightforward. So why was I having such a hard time thinking of something to say? I then realized I don't, in fact, think it's that straightforward. Also, I don't think this is exactly about dishes. I think it's about respect and communication. Think of it this way. It took you 30 years to work up the words to say how much this bothered you. And his response was, by your interpretation, contemptuous. I don't have an answer to this except to say after 30 years together, this feels more important than just a glass. This one comes from qcbad.com. Subject, LDR. Dear Quinn, long-distance relationships, are they worth it? And how long do you live a thousand miles apart before you move or move on? I know even less than I usually do, and as we know, I usually know nothing. I have no idea how long this relationship has been going on, how serious it is, whether this distance is a permanent thing or a temporary condition. And yet I will offer bad advice. All relationships require a certain degree of work and care. Long-distance relationships don't require more work, but they have certain very specific requirements, and one of them is transparency. If you two are a thousand miles away from each other, you must decide what a relationship means and agree on it and continue to agree on it. Does it mean there's only adult wrestling time with each other? Or does it mean that you can date, but you can't form emotional bonds with another person? Do you spend every Saturday night having a Skype date and arrange to meet in the city, town, or hamlet equidistant every three weeks? Is one person trying to find a job closer? For this to work, there must be rigorous honesty. Because a lot of what we learn about people is in their body language, and people in long-distance relationships don't have that most days. Here's the other thing. Human brains are squishy and complicated. The odds of both people being exactly as invested in a relationship are very slim. One person is going to suffer this distance more than the other. Feelings are going to get hurt. There's a reason fights escalate on the Internet. Humans are designed to read faces and bodies for de-escalation clues. When you send your beloved a ranting text about that guy at work, and it takes an hour for your beloved to write back, and all they say is, yeah, it's going to become a thing. You two will have to learn how to fight really, really, clinically, and fairly. Not everyone is up to this. And yet, 
people all over the planet are making long-distance relationships work. Flirting via text can be deeply satisfying. Having a partner you see every other weekend could give you lots of time to pour into work, into hobbies, into yourself. It's doable. Only you know if it's doable for you. This one comes from qcbad.com. Subject. When is the right time to tell your new girlfriend you just figured out you used to date her older sister? Now. There is nothing to be gained from waiting, and all that will happen is when the fact inevitably gets out, and it will, she will look at you and see not only someone who traded spit at the very least with her sister, she'll see someone who didn't bother to tell her this while you two traded spit at the very least. You might be saying, well, what if we don't last long enough for it to matter? If you have done anything more intimate than shake hands with this woman, it matters. It's a creepy little fact that will grow no less creepy with time. Stop this podcast and call her right now and see what she's doing tonight, because I cannot believe I have to say this, but you are not telling her this over a text. Dear Quinn, I manage a small team. Mary, not her real name, is super sweet, very talented, and works hard, but is currently part-time. Every time she gets a new assignment, she panics and accuses me and my boss of, quote-unquote, setting her up to fail. Her self-esteem is very low. I try to encourage her and show my appreciation for her work, but this is getting exhausting. I can't fire her, and I don't want to. Every time I bring up anything even slightly critical, she shuts down. What should I do? Fun etymology fact. The word panic comes from the Greek god Pan, who was said to have occasionally caused human beings to flee in unreasoning fear, or, as you might know it, panic. Fun biology fact. When we panic, the frontal lobe of our brain, which is where we do most of our complicated thinking, goes sleepy time night-night. I have no idea about her self-esteem, and I don't actually care. But I think Mary is battling anxiety, which can make a person, if not completely irrational, then within inches of completely irrational. The only thing worse than dealing with someone living with anxiety is living with anxiety. I speak from experience. But none of this should be your responsibility. Mary is not your child or your spouse or your beloved grandmother. Mary is someone you say you cannot fire. So what to do? I think the first question is, once the initial anxiety spasm eases up, is her work good? You say it is. Fine. Then she's here and her work is good. But she is sucking up time and resources like a freaked-out Dyson, and babysitting an anxious person was never, I'm guessing, part of your job description. I ask again what to do. Here's my suggestion. When the next project is put to bed, set up a meeting with her. 
Maybe, if possible, go for a walk outside. Walking is really good for combating anxiety. Also, if you're walking side by side, you aren't looking at her. Eye contact can send some anxious people into feeling attacked. So, ideally, you're walking, you're not looking at her, and you're telling her that you are always happy with the work she produces, but it seems as if she has a hurdle she has to get through to start the work. Now she might start wailing about feeling attacked. Here is the trick. Let her talk and then continue where you were. Don't engage with the anxiety. Talk to the person under it and tell that person you want to see if the two of you can find her some tools to help ease the new project nerves. Every time the anxiety speaks up, you go completely silent, then go back to what you were saying. After you have said your piece, go back to work and send her an email saying, in effect, to sum up our conversation, here are the suggestions that Mary and I have come up with to help Mary start projects more easily. Then, CC every single person you think should know you're working on this with Mary. Will it work? I have no idea. Managing anxiety can be a lifelong battle. But you have let her know you want to help her in a productive way. You have indicated her current behavior needs to change without ever saying that. And you've let the powers that be know that while you may not be able to fire her, you're not in the business of babysitting her anymore. Dear Quinn, I am a single woman closer to 40 than 30 who does not come from a well-off family versed in the ways of real estate. Should I try to buy a house on my own this year as insurance against an uncertain future? How do I make the right decision? I have great credit, but some student loan and credit card debt. I have nowhere near enough information to answer this. I don't know where you live. I don't know how much a mortgage would be relative to your income. I don't know if the kind of work you do would be adversely affected by you being tied to a specific area if there was a downturn in the market and the house you couldn't sell but you wanted to kept you from moving. In short, I do not know. And neither do you. Which is why I want you to now Google Certified Financial Planner Near Me. If you don't know what that is, allow me to read what I just found on a website. A certified financial planner, CFP, helps clients create long-term plans to meet their financial goals, whether it's getting out of debt, saving for a home, diversifying their portfolio, or investing for retirement. A CFP professional can help you create a financial roadmap. Now, back to me. That's what you want. You want a neutral, seasoned person to look at your financial options and help you through the unknown bits. In 2009, a lot of people discovered they shouldn't have bought a house. They did not know enough and will suffer for that decision for years to come. You will get a CFP. You will learn more. And then, whatever decision you make, you can be confident you made it from a position of strength and knowledge. This one comes from QCBad.com. Subject, Teenager Floating in the World Like a Piece of Driftwood. Dear Quinn, just wondering if you have any advice to help the mom of a 15-year-old boy who has literally no idea who or what he wants to be when he hits adulthood. He doesn't love school, but makes okay grades. 
He says he has no idea what he wants to study in college, or even what really interests him. I know it's his life, but how can I gently help him move in a direction that might allow him to make a decent living someday? Find the book Range by David Epstein. Then read it. The world needs generalists more than ever, and that your son is not locked into something right now is probably the best news ever. I could give you a longer answer, but David is going to do it so much better than I ever could. Get the book, read the book, and report back after you read it. This one comes from qcbad.com. Subject, broken. Dear Quinn, my mother has broken up with me and my family multiple times. This time, after ignoring my and my husband's wishes not to interfere with my daughter's health issues, she decided to give my five-year-old an anal suppository during her play date with them. I was furious when I found out from my daughter. I explained to my parents why I was outraged. My parents have not seen either of my children since this happened, and since they have not recognized that my mother's behavior was inappropriate. My mother now says she never wants us to speak again. Part of me is upset, and part of me is relieved. How do I move on from this? If you haven't already, you find a therapist. It sounds as if a malignant narcissist is doing what they are usually incapable of doing, which is to say providing a service for another human being. She has physically violated your daughter and destroyed whatever trust you may have had left in her. Now she is gone. And since you and I both kind of know she will swing back around again, your job between now and then is to develop every single tool you will need to keep her away from you and your family. The odds of her changing are vanishingly small. But the comforting thing about a narcissist is they are remarkably simple creatures. She will come back and run her program. You will not engage with it because you will have tools. She will blow up and leave again. She might try coming back again in pretty much exactly the same way. You will not engage with it. Eventually, she will stop trying because she isn't getting what she wants and narcissists aren't designed to change their behavior. You will do this to protect yourself and your family. Find the therapist, read the books about narcissistic parents, and get ready for battle. Okay, I think that's enough bad advice for today. And remember, I can't give you bad advice if you don't ask for it. Your question doesn't have to be profound, complex, or emotionally demanding. It can be about pretty much anything because, let's face it, I am unqualified to offer advice across a wide range of subject matter. And as we all know, sometimes the nuttiest question gets the best bad advice. You can reach me on Twitter, at Quincy. That's Q-U-I-N-N-C-Y at Twitter.com. Or you can post a question to qcbad.com. Just log into letter Q, letter C, B-A-D.com, and there's a question form right there. The question can be any length, but I'm finding they work better if they're shorter. Just a hint. Before I go, I'd like to thank Richard Emmett, who composed my groovy music, and Keith Greenstein, who designed my groovy logo. 
People have already started asking me how they can get a bad advice fork in a toaster t-shirt or coffee mug, and my answer to them is, hang in there, we are working on it. I also want to thank Phil Roar and Prime Rib Productions for making it possible for you to hear any of this. Okay, that's enough for now. Keep those questions coming, and I'll see you all next time.